Hello and welcome to Numbers on the Boards, presented by Fanboys, the official toy store of the Dallas Mavericks. My name is Bobby Corella. The show, of course, is part of Studio 41 Radio on 97.1 The Freak and the Mavs YouTube channel, etc., etc., etc. Now, normally, I'm joined by the GOAT, the great Jeff Skin Wade, but today we're doing something a little different. It's going to be me. I'm flying solo. I'm still going hard in the paint. I'm just going to Leroy Jenkins the opposition. It's me versus them, baby. So buckle up because the next 21 minutes, give or take, is going to be full of numbers. It's going to be full of boards. It's going to be full of stats, hot sports opinions, and even hotter Mavs opinions. All right, so let's have some fun. First off, very troubling trend for the Mavs. The defense is struggling. The Mavs are having a very hard time stopping people. Now, we're recording this on Thursday, so maybe they held the Suns to 50. Maybe they set a new record, right? Maybe the defense is totally solved. But despite all of these guys coming back for the Mavs, despite Josh Green's return, Dorian Finney-Smith's return, Maxi Kleba's looming return, which is hopefully going to come very soon, Dallas is still really, really struggling on that end of the floor. And so I want to dig into why right on the top of the show. But first, let's backtrack a little bit. So mid-December is when the Mavs lost Josh Green, Maxi Kleba, and Dorian Finney-Smith. Boom, boom, boom in succession. December 9th, December 13th, December 19th. They're, they're all gone, right? And for about a month, the Mavs had to lean way further into a more offensive philosophy with Christian Wood starting at the five, Tim Hardaway Jr. sliding up into the starting lineup alongside Luka Doncic, Spencer Dinwiddie, and Reggie Bullock. Now, Reggie Bullock, of course, very above-average defender, very solid defender, Everyone will tell you that, but all of the other guys, their focus is always more on getting buckets, right? They're supposed to be the guys that are getting you like 60, 70, 80 points per game combined. You're not asking them to stop guys like Kawhi Leonard or Damian Lillard, but that's how it was. In the 20 games from December 10th, that's the first game without Josh Green, Max Kleba also did not play in that game. In the 20 games from December 10th to January 15th, which was the final game before Green and Dorian Finney-Smith return, the Mavs allowed 119 points per 100 possessions, which ranked 28th in the NBA during that time. Before that, so from opening night all the way through December 9th, they ranked tied for 10th in the NBA at 111.2 points per possession allowed. And so we're talking about a, a top 10 or borderline top 10 defense that, boom, lost three of its best defenders, and all of a sudden they suffered. And that is, again, to be expected. You're having to roll out all of your offensive-minded players. All of your best, most switchable, most versatile defenders are on the sideline. And also, losing Finney Smith and Josh Green has other unintended consequences that we'll get into later. But to overcome those deficiencies and to protect guys like Luka and Spencer Dinwiddie, Tim Hardaway from foul trouble, the Mavs had to constantly throw double teams at everybody. They're double-teaming Kawhi, double-teaming Damian Lillard. You think back to all of those games in mid to late December where all of a sudden the Mavs are like, let's double-team Trey Jones, or like, Bones Highland is having a good night. we got to put more pressure on him. You know, Dallas has shown the tendency and the knack. Jason Kidd kind of prefers this way of like, if the other team has a really good player, well, let's put more pressure on that guy's plate. Jason Tatum, you're a great player. You're going to see two guys all night. But the Celtics and all other teams, really, that the Mavs have been going up against lately are just so good at moving the ball. And so that's how the Mavs are being punished during that month. It wasn't so much that 
individually great players were killing him. It was that all the other guys were feasting too. But now Dorian and Josh Green are back, and so I was thinking, okay, well, they're probably not going to send as many double teams stars ways because you can just say, hey, Dorian, just go guard Kawhi. You know, man, man to man tonight. Take them one-on-one, baby, and then we'll just worry about the Norman Powells of the world. We'll worry about Nick Batum and even Paul George. We have Reggie Bullock for that. You have Josh Green for him. Like, you don't have to double-team everybody, but still the Mavs are continuing to send those double-teams. You think whenever the Clippers were here last week, Dallas was double-teaming Kawhi Leonard. Dallas was double-teaming Jimmy Butler against the Heat. They were sending two guys at Trey Young all night, sending two guys at Bradley Beal all night. And so it wasn't necessarily, once again, those guys that were beating the Mavs. It was the swing swings. It was the hockey assist. It was Bradley Beal kick it out to Monty Morris, who swings it over to Kyle Kuzma, wide open in the corner for three. Kawhi Leonard, you're posting up Dorian Finney-Smith. Well, now Luke is going to double team. You're going to kick it out to Nick Batum. He's going to swing it over to Norman Powell. And Norman Powell had like 25 or 30 points in that game whenever the Clippers were in town last weekend. So you think back to recent Mavs games. Portland twice, the Clippers once whenever they were in Dallas, and the Wizards all had at least five secondary assists. So secondary assists is I swing it to you, you pass it to another guy, boom, he makes the shot, I get a secondary assist, you get the main assist. But that's a secondary assist. They had at least five secondary assists in each of those games. The Warriors this year lead the league averaging 5.0 secondary assists per game. And so the ball movement is at a Warriors level against the Mavs recently as a result of not only double teaming, it's also just breakdowns on the perimeter. Now, one team, Atlanta, only had one secondary assist against the Mavs, but they had 28 assists in total, and so did two other teams in that time. And this year, only two teams average at least 28 assists per game. And so the ball is just flying around the perimeter, and the Mavs are constantly in rotation. And whenever you're in rotation, whenever you're out of position, well, what happens? Two things. One, you foul a lot. And as a result of the ball moving so much and as a result of the Mavs constantly scrambling, you know they're trying to cover a lot of ground. They're trying to cover up maybe for mistakes that they made or blow-bys or whatever. The Mavs now rank dead last in the NBA in opponent free throw rate. They allow the most free throws per field goal attempt in the NBA, and frankly, it's not even close. For every 10 shots that, the, that their opponents take, opponents get three free throws. So look back to recent games on the Mavs' homestand. Washington, 41 free throws, they made 32. The Clippers, 31 free throw attempts, they made 30. And those are home games. Normally you give up a lot of fouls, you know, you give a lot of free throws on the road, right? Home teams, friendly whistle. But no, these games are played in Dallas. The Blazers, recently against the Mavs, took 42 free throws and made 37. And so not only are they getting a lot, but they're also making a lot. That is just a devastating number of free points to give up. It is super, duper, ultra tough to win games, especially the way the Mavs want to, which is like, you know, 107 to 101. They want to play this very slow, low-scoring brand of basketball relying on their defense. But if the other team is getting 30 or 40 free points per game at the free throw line, it's really hard to do that. You know, it's hard to keep them below 100. It's almost impossible to keep them even below 110 because they're getting so many easy looks. And they're also hitting open threes, again, because you're scrambling, you're out of position. And furthermore... Whenever you're rotating all the time, whenever you got Luca closing out on shooters and then the guy blows by him, so then someone else has to slide over and help, and Christian Wood isn't there, so someone else has to protect the rim, or maybe you overreact to a lack of rim protection, and so you don't have uh, you know uh, that one guy down there, so you got to swarm the rim, which means you leave the other corner open. 
bodies are flying around, it's really, really hard to box out. So Dallas, despite the offensive rebound woes, and there have been many this season, the Mavs still rank smack dab right in the middle of the league in defensive rebounding rate. But opponents are really taking advantage of all of their second chances. So they're getting the same number of offensive rebounds as they have all year, but they're just scoring better. You think about it, if if Ivica Zubats is crashing the glass against Dorian Finney-Smith, it's a lot easier to score on Dorian on a tip-in than it is, say, you know, Dwight Powell or Christian Wood, right? Dallas is playing so small, they're not getting any second-chance points of their own. So it's the offensive end where they're really, really struggling in that regard. So dating back to the Boston loss, that's January 5th, and the Mavs' last 11 games, they are a cumulative minus 47 in second-chance points in 11 games. So they're just giving the other team, the other team is profiting more than four points per game. That includes a 14-point gap in a loss against the Clippers and an eight-point margin in a loss against the Wizards. And yes, in a one-point loss or in like an eight-point loss, those margins matter quite a bit. You get a couple extra second-chance points or maybe you prevent the Wizards from getting some second-chance points. You probably win that game. And so now in the four games since Green and Finney Smith have returned, the Mavs, despite you know, maybe thinking, well, yeah, they're going to get better, right? They're, they're going to get better on defense. They, they haven't. Unfortunately, they're allowing 119.8 points per 100 possessions in those four games, which is a bottom 10 mark in the NBA. Everyone is kind of struggling on defense. This isn't just unique to the Mavs, but it still is not good enough. Those who listen to the show, you listen to last week's episode, you'll remember when I was talking about the Mavs records in games when allowing at least 118 points per 100 possessions. That's what the the 30th ranked defense allows. Well, now the Mavs record in those games is now 2-15. and 15. So 17 times they've played defense at the level of the worst defense in the NBA. They've lost 15 of them. In all other games, they're 23-9. and nine. Okay, so again, I'm not asking to be a top 10 defense, right? I'm not even asking to be top half. I'm just asking don't be like the Rockets. Don't be like the San Antonio Spurs. Because whenever you defend at their level, you win and you lose at their level. When the Mavs defend just better than the worst, right? They win at the same rate as the Celtics, who have the best record in the NBA. And so those are the margins that matter. It's not about being the best. It's not about being top 10. No, it is about just being average, just holding your weight, not having to double team, just pulling your weight, right? That's what needs to change. Everybody needs to be a little bit better. Spencer did what he said so himself after the loss to the Wizards. And so we'll see if the Mavs are able to apply that in upcoming games. Now, I want to vent a little bit here. So going back to that Wizards game, there was a sequence in the fourth quarter that just really ground, grinded or ground, ground my gears. It grinded my gears. Katya, what do you think? Grinded. Katya says grinded. Thank you. We got to get you a mic, Katya. Uh, Katya will join next on, on the corner three, by the way. Grinded my gears. That's back-to-back take fouls. Or rather, one take foul and one non-take foul. Okay, I'm not bitter about the result of the game. I'm not mad. I, I'm, I'm mad about the implementation of the rule. So I want to talk about the rule itself. I don't care about the game. It's ancient history at this point. It doesn't even matter. Just tell everybody I'm not mad. Okay, so last year there was a little bit of a study. Last year everybody complained about take fouls, right? A transition take fouls whenever they have the ball and you foul them on a fast break. Okay, there were an estimated 1.4 take fouls per game in the NBA last season. So less than two per game. People were super mad about it. They complained all the time. There's a guy, Brad Bodkin of CBS Sports. He wrote, quote, Fast breaks are one of the most exciting parts of basketball. 
Nobody, and I mean nobody, wants to watch players grabbing each other to stop fast breaks. So the NBA acted very quickly. And I am afraid to say that I think it was a mistake. So first off, again, what exactly is a take foul? Well, let's turn to Rule 4, Section 4 of the NBA rulebook titled Fouls. There are nine types of fouls listed in the rulebook. Three of them have secondary conditions. One is when a foul is committed at the buzzer. One is what constitutes an away-from-the-play foul. But take fouls. Take fouls have six conditions. And half of those conditions have subsections, right? Okay, so here is the definition of the rule. A transition take foul, this is a direct quote from the rulebook, is a foul where the defender commits a foul in which the defender does not make a play on the ball against any offensive player and the foul is committed either during a transition scoring opportunity or immediately following a change of possession and before the offensive team has the opportunity to advance the ball. Okay, that's just one component of the rule, right? Then they go on to define a transition scoring opportunity in subsection 5 of the rule, which is, quote, following a change in possession when the offensive team is continuously advancing the ball while it has an advantage based on the speed of play, the position of the defenders, or both. Again, that is one subsection of one rule in the rule book. And so my issue with the take foul is how sloppy the rollout has been. To say it's sloppy would actually be an understatement, okay? Immediately introducing and implementing new rules like this one, especially one like what you just saw, it is so subjective. It's obviously going to have some unintended consequences, right? There's going to be some weird uh, fouls, some weird rulings, because everyone's sort of feeling it out. Think back to the first year of coaches' challenges, right? There was just a lot of confusion uh, because the, you know, the NBA is just making it happen. The first troubling uh, example of a take foul was way back on October 30th in a game against the Magic. Paolo Bancaro turned it over in the final seconds of the first quarter. Luca takes the ball, sprinting down the floor. Uh, Bancaro just gives up and grabs him from behind with .4 on the clock. Now the Mavs were in the bonus in that situation. So they should have gotten two free throws in the ball, right? Well, no. Because it was a take foul, he only got one free throw. Only one free throw. And then possession of the ball. But you get possession of the ball with .4 seconds left, that doesn't matter, right? So the Mavs actually lost the potential to get one point on that. And in that situation, it's actually more favorable as the defense to commit a take foul rather than a regular foul or let the guy score because you can turn what would be a dunk or what would be uh, you know, a, a two free throw foul into just a one-shot foul. And possession. But okay, I'm going to be patient, right? We, we all, as long as things are consistent, right, I can handle a little bit of some wishy-washy interpretations of the rule. But you want to talk about consistency. Buddy, do I got a problem. On January 24th against the Wizards, Dwight Powell is called for a transition take foul. And 20 seconds later, Bradley Beal was not. Now, we got video evidence of this play. Of course, you've all seen it. Uh, this show is also on YouTube as well. So in this first play, Luka goes up for a shot. Dwight Powell goes to the rebound and sort of haphazardly grabs at Anthony Gill and is called for a take foul on his way down for what could be or should be called a loose ball foul. Now, on literally the next possession, 20 seconds later, Bradley Beal misses a layup. He and Luka go for the rebound. Beal falls into Tim Hardaway Jr. and sort of haphazardly grabs Tim's leg the same exact way that Dwight Powell did to Anthony Gill and was not called for a take foul. In fact, the officials even reviewed the play and determined, nope, not a take foul. That's a regular foul. Now, amidst that, Jason Kidd was given a technical foul for arguing about the first take foul, and fans in the building had to sit through like a two-minute review to figure out whether this play was a regular foul, a flagrant foul, 
or a take foul. So the, the whole point of this rule, right, is to make basketball more exciting. Dunks are cool. Fast breaks are good, right? Run out plays are awesome. Take fouls sort of cheapen that because you eliminate a, an opportunity for a dunk. So has it worked, right? Has the foul worked? Uh, no. Teams in the NBA this year are scoring about 1.5 more fast break points per game. So you get one more transition opportunity. But free throws are way up as well. So last season, two teams in the NBA took at least 24 free throws per game. Nine took at least 23 per game. This season, though, 12 teams are taking at least 24 free throws and 20 are taking at least 23. And so, yeah, sure, we get two, we get two more fast break points. We get one more fast break bucket per game, but we also have to sit through one or two or three extra trips to the free throw line in order to do it. And here's a more concrete stat. Last season, 5.8% of all field goal attempts were dunks. This year, 6.0% of all field goal attempts are dunks. So congrats, we did it. We solved it. We have made basketball way more exciting. Okay, There's way more dunks. There's one dunk uh, every, what is that, every 500 games, I think. There's one extra dunk. So that's really, really cool. Um, you know, uh, Transition defense, as Steve Kerr said, is at an all-time low. But hey, at least we get one dunk per month. That is fantastic, and, and, and that's the way that we should do it. So uh, looking forward to how this rule is reshaped moving forward. In the meantime, the Mavs have a beast of a schedule coming up. Okay, We're looking at the Mavs' next 11 games beginning Thursday night on the road against Phoenix, and you look at those teams and you think, oh my God, it looks like all of those teams are really good. And if that's your suspicion, well, you would be correct. Okay, Because <laughs> of the Mavs' next 11 games between now and the All-Star break, Ten of them are against Western Conference teams that are currently in the playoffs. And that includes teams uh, 7 through 10 that would be in the play-in. So you think of the number one Nuggets, right? They're, they're way above everybody else. They don't matter. But the Mavs play twice against the Kings. They play against the Pelicans. They play against the Clippers, the Suns, the Wolves, the Warriors, the Jazz twice. They're playing all these teams, many of them coming on the road. These games matter a whole lot. Now, why? In addition to just seeding in the conference, tiebreakers are at stake. So currently, as it is right now, as of Thursday, January 26th, the Mavs had an 8-7 and seven record against the teams that they're playing between now and the All-Star break. Uh, that includes a lot of ties. 1-1 one one against Phoenix, 1-1 one one against New Orleans, 1-2 uh, against the Clippers, but you have that game. 2-1 against the Denver, uh, against the Nuggets, but you have that game. Now, this will be the final time that they play Minnesota, who they're currently 1-1 one one against. And after this upcoming stretch of schedule, they have one more game against each of Sacramento, Phoenix, Utah, New Orleans, and Golden State. Okay, so these games matter a whole heck of a lot because with as bunched together as the standings are right now, odds are seedings will be determined by tiebreakers, right? So the Mavs this season, they're playing the Kings three times. The Mavs are playing the Warriors three times. These games that they, they play twice in Sacramento, they get them once in Dallas. So if you go 0-2 against the Kings on the road, well, the Kings are going to have that head-to-head tiebreaker. The Mavs are 1-0 against the Jazz. They play the Jazz twice. Now, granted, trade deadline could change some things. Maybe the Jazz makes some moves, but both of those games are before the trade deadline, and so there's a pretty good chance the Jazz will have most of, if not their entire roster available. Two games on the road, those games are going to be really, really tough. Playing at Phoenix, Phoenix won five straight games. They're really, really good. Playing at Denver. Denver hasn't lost at home since the Mavs beat them on like December 6th. That game is going to be really, really hard. This is your final game against the Wolves, who you're currently 1-1 one one against. And so 
all of these head-to-head tiebreakers matter a whole lot. And so ideally, going into a stretch of schedule like this where you're playing 10 playoff teams, ideally you'd be playing your best basketball. Like you'd be in top form right now coming into these games. You can win half of them or a little more than half of them and you're good, right? You can seal up some tiebreakers. Hey, let's clinch that against Minnesota. Let's clinch the head-to-head against the Suns. Let's uh, beat the Warriors. Let's upset them on the road like we did last season. We can clinch that tiebreaker too. But it ain't going to be that easy. The Mavs are really, really struggling right now. We've talked about their defense. Uh, of course, everybody knows that Luka's scoring a bunch, but without Christian Wood, now all of a sudden it's like, okay, can enough guys give them 15 or 20 points? And can they get enough bench scoring to get to the 110 or 115 points they need to win a game? Sometimes even more than that, uh, if, you, if you ask Jason Kidd. So it's going to be very, very tough, but this is a super-duper important stretch of schedule. Uh, many of those games on the road as well, and the Mavs are 8-15 and 15 away from home so far this season. So they're going to have to, to, to clean up their act on the road. They're going to have to clean up their act on the defensive end of the floor. Of course, the role players are going to have to continue scoring, and, and hopefully Christian Wood gets back to health as soon as possible. Same for Maxi Kleba as well, so that you can have even more rim protection and even more offensive options. But there's, there's no two ways around it really, really tough stretch of schedule. And we're going to learn a lot about not only this team, but also the direction of the season, where this thing is going and what to expect as far as playoff odds and, and whether they can get in the top six, the top four, or whether they're going to be fighting just to get in the play-in on the other side of the All-Star break. So really, really big two weeks coming up. And I'm excited to see how it goes. All right. That is going to be it for me today. A fast and furious numbers on the boards. If you're listening on 97.1 The Freak, Stick around because coming up next, we got the corner three. And if you're just watching on YouTube, listen on Spotify, iTunes, whatever. Well, hey, I hope you have a great rest of your day as well. And we'll see you next time on Numbers on the Boards, presented by Fanboys, the official toy store of the Dallas Mavericks. See ya.